the year 2020, I think it would be an understatement to say that it's been a, it's been a remarkable year uh, for many different reasons. And uh, I don't want to minimize, uh, I, don't want to, I certainly don't want to minimize the effect that COVID has had on our country and our world. I don't want to minimize the racial justice issues uh, in America. I don't want to minimize the presidential election, the, the wildfires, the hurricanes, uh, the killer wasps. I don't, I don't want to minimize any of that and the effect it's had. But I think that what may well be, uh, what may well prove to be the most significant thing about 2020 will be that it was the year that many of the ideas that have been simmering on college campuses and on social media and on the periphery of our culture, that, that those philosophical ideas that have been simmering in those places all exploded into the mainstream culture in a way that seems like it all happened at once. Philosophical ideas like gender theory, uh, critical race theory, intersectionality, compelled speech, censorship of free speech, and others. And then along with our long-standing differences on social issues like abortion and, and sexuality and other issues like those, those ideas are all driving social change at breakneck speed and polarizing our nation to a degree that some of our best thinkers are deeply concerned about our nation's ability to remain united. I think that's what will prove to be the most significant as we look back in history at the year 2020, the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung once said that people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. The brilliant American theologian of the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, once wrote, the ideas and the images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly government, govern them. The point is, that ideas, philosophical ideas, drive the world and they govern your behavior. You are more controlled by philosophical ideas than you know. You think you make decisions on the basis of free will, but you are more controlled by philosophical ideas than you know. Good ideas produce healthy minds and hearts and relationships. Bad ideas destroy people and they destroy relationships and they also destroy nations. My concern as a pastor is that the church in America, and city church as part of that, neither understands the power of ideas nor has the biblical worldview to assess and to evaluate the ideas that we find ourselves wrestling with as a culture here in the first half of the 21st century. And as proof of that, let me, let me just offer this. A study uh, by the Cultural Research Center directed by George Barna found that Although 61% of American millennials consider themselves to be Christians, 61% okay, of American millennials consider themselves to be Christians, just 2% of them were found to hold a biblical worldview. And in case you think that the problem is only millennials, only 9% of adults 56 and older hold a biblical worldview, and 5% of people between 37 and 55 hold a biblical worldview. And I want you to listen to what, to George Barna's conclusion. He said, these profiles are profoundly disturbing. The significantly divergent worldview perspectives and applications of the four generations suggests a nation that is at war with itself to adopt new values, lifestyles, and a new identity. In other words, there is a war for worldview dominance, but as the scriptures remind us, a nation 
at war with itself cannot persist. It is out of this concern that we do not have the biblical worldview to evaluate the ideas that are circulating in our culture today. That we're starting a, a seven-week series this morning called Let My People Think. And the purpose of this series is to help you establish seven basic elements of a biblical worldview. Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your what? All your mind. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 likewise said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Christ followers are to be people who think and who live in a manner and who view the world in a manner that is consistent with reality. And so I want to help you establish seven basic elements of a biblical worldview. Now, before we even get into the passage that we're going to be looking at today, some of you might be asking, what's a worldview? Here's an easy definition that you might want to take note of somewhere. A worldview provides a model of the world which governs your daily decisions and actions. Now, let me say it again for those who are listening on our podcast. A worldview provides a model of the world which governs your daily decisions and actions. In other words, the way that you see the world, the way that you think about life and reality dictates the way that you live. Now, right off the bat, you need to understand that you already have a worldview. Indeed, everyone has a worldview. Even if you don't know that you have a worldview, you have a model of the world made up of ideas and presuppositions that you have picked up from the culture, from your family, from your friends, your teachers, coaches, whoever. But most people are not aware of the ideas and the presuppositions that make up their, uh, their view of the world and how those ideas shape the way they live their lives. And you might also be asking, besides what's a worldview, you might also be asking, seriously, why does this really matter? Here's why it matters. Because the extent to which your worldview corresponds with reality, the more you will experience what the Bible refers to as shalom, peace, well-being, wholeness, harmony. And the extent to which your worldview does not correspond with reality, the more you will experience Chaos, division, inner conflict, outer conflict, broken relationships, and more. Having a biblical worldview is critically imperative because it corresponds to reality. And so as I said, over the course of, of this series, I want to give you seven elements of a biblical worldview that will help you think through the ideas that are swirling around in our culture today so that you can experience shalom instead of chaos. And today... We're going to start with the very first element of a biblical worldview. If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to the book of Acts in the New Testament, uh, chapter 17. Acts chapter uh, 17. And as we begin to think about a worldview that, that corresponds to reality, the first thing we really have to do is try to understand and define what is reality. Like, what is at the center of reality? There are many different places that we could go to in the Bible to, to, to define that. But I think Acts chapter 17 is the most appropriate for our purposes this morning. What is reality? What constitutes reality? That's the question that I want to answer this morning. If reality were a ball, let's say, 
and you could just and you could you could open up what would be at the core of reality. That's that's the starting point for building a biblical worldview because everything else about your worldview follows what is at the center of reality. We're in Acts 17, and I want to start reading uh, from verse 16. Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. While Paul was waiting uh, for them in Athens, the story kind of picks up in the middle. I'll explain this in a minute. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, just jump in, because as I said, this kind of starts in the middle of a narrative. The Apostle Paul has been traveling through Greece, uh, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he, and, and he lands in Athens where he's waiting for a couple of his ministry companions. Now, Athens, uh, of course, is the home of what? Anyone know? What's Athens the home of? It's the home of ancient philosophy. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all of these, all of these philosophers uh, and all of the ones who came before them and all the philosophers who studied under them, they all came out of Athens. It's the birthplace of of philosophy. So it's incredibly important what we're seeing and what's going to happen here. So pick up the narrative back in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Remember, this is Athens. It's the home of philosophy. So it makes sense that there would be these philosophers there. They began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say. Others remarked he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, uh, let me just jump in again here for a moment. What is the Areopagus? The Areopagus was the, what was the, it was sort of like the town council of Athens. The, the people who sat on it were the elite of the city. They were the intellectual elite of the city, the financial elite, the social elite of the city. And they would hear at, this, uh, at, this, at the Areopagus, they, they would hear philosophical ideas presented to them, and they would discuss them, they would examine them, they would scrutinize them, and then either embrace them or they would reject them and even, even censor uh, those philosophical ideas. Verse 19. Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas... To our ears, and we would like to know uh, what they mean. And then the writer of the uh, book of Luke kind of gives us a parenthetical comment here. He says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It kind of makes sense since it's the home of philosophy. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself, give, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him. And perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move 
and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I'm going to stop there this morning. Now, there's a great deal more to be said about this passage than I have time left for uh, today. So I'm going to divide my comments between two particular statements in this passage that I think are critically important for our purposes this morning. One, uh, one set of my comments, one half of my comments, is going to be based around this, this, this altar that Paul references with the inscription to an unknown God. He, he says that in verse 23. He finds this altar uh, in the city of Athens, and it says, to an unknown God. So I want you to make note of that. We're going we're to talk about that in just a moment. The other uh, passage, or the other verse that I want, really want to focus on is one of the most profound philosophical statements in the New Testament. It's found in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of our, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I actually want to start there, and then we'll work our way back to the inscription in verse 23, to an unknown God. That verse, 28, I said that's a significant philosophical uh, uh, proposition. It is more of a significant pro- uh, philosophical proposition than you likely realize. One of the earliest questions you see that ancient philosophers and scientists long before Paul wrestled with, and that philosophers and scientists today still wrestle with, is what is often referred to as the problem of the one and the many. In other words, ancient philosophers and scientists looked at the world and they saw a variety of things. They saw trees and horses and bushes and, and people and moon and, and, and stars and a, and a myriad of other things. And the question was, why is all of this holding together? Like, what holds it all together? Uh, anybody know where the word universe comes from? It's actually a hybrid term that comes from the combination of two distinct words. Uh, one, the word unity, and the other, the word diversity. Unity and diversity, universe. This unity and diversity of the universe was what preoccupied early philosophers and scientists. And by the way, it still does today. And what those early philosophers and scientists wanted to understand, what people today want to understand, they want to find that unity that would make sense of all the diversity in the world. What holds it all together? Uh, Some of you might be old enough to remember that there was a show back in the 1980s uh, that a famous scientist had on television. Uh, His name was Carl Sagan, and the television series was called Cosmos. Uh, Anyone want to show your age to demonstrate that you saw that show? Yeah, you remember that show, some of you. Uh, The show was called Cosmos. It, It became also the name of one of his most famous books. In the first episode of the series, and on the first page of his book, Sagan made the observation that scientists are searching to understand why we see cosmos in the universe. You know what the word cosmos means? It means a harmonious system. Why we see cosmos, harmony in in the world and not chaos. And he says that the only reason can be is that there is something that holds all of it together, some unifying principle that holds all of the diversity together. But what? Discovering that, that thing, that that unifying principle that holds the universe together was Sagan's goal. It was the goal of early philosophers and the goal of philosophers and scientists today. They were and they were search, they were and are searching for the holy grail of ultimate reality. The single principle that would explain everything in existence. Now, can you give me just another minute here? I don't want to bore you with a long philosophy lesson, 
But if you'll give me just another minute, this is, this is really important what I'm going to say. I'm going to condense about 600 years of philosophy into about a paragraph of words here, okay? But this is really critical, and you'll see why in just a moment. 600 years or so before Paul speaks here at the Areopagus, as early philosophers sought to make sense of the unity and diversity of the universe, why there's cosmos, not chaos, they quite naturally began to think about life itself. What's, what's the origin of life? How did life as we know it come to be? Where did all that we see come from? So life, that was something they began to wrestle with. What's the origin of life? The second key issue that they began to think about, this may be surprising to you, had to do with the issue of motion. Like, How do you explain the fact that there is motion in the universe? There has to be some cause for motion. And then a third key issue had to do with change. Now again, remember, I'm, I'm compressing 600 years of philosophy into just a, a minute here. The third issue had to do with change. On the one hand, we're human beings, but on the other hand, we're always changing. I mean, even if it's just because of age, we're always changing, we're always becoming the beings that we will one day be. In order for us to be human beings and also to become the human beings we will one day be, ultimate reality has to account for that. It has to account for being and becoming. So three things. This, this ultimate reality has to account for three things. Life, movement, movement, and being. Look again at what Paul says in verse 28. In him we live, there's life. We move, there's movement. And have our being. What's he saying? He's saying that the ultimate reality that you have been looking for for 600 years is the God that I'm telling you about now. He is the ultimate reality that holds the diversity of the world into a unified whole. At the very core of reality is the God that I am proclaiming to you. You see, the point that Paul's making is that if you're going to build a coherent view of the world, you have to start here. So the first element of a biblical worldview here it is. You might want to make a note of this. The first element of a biblical worldview is that God is ultimate reality. God is ultimate reality. God defines reality. You don't define reality. Wealthy people, powerful people do not define rea reality. Intellectuals do not define reality. Majorities don't define reality. God is ultimate reality. He is what holds everything together in the universe, you see. He is what, he is who defines reality. Now, why does that matter? Because we said a bit ago that the extent to which your worldview corresponds with reality, the more you will experience what the Bible refers to as shalom, and the less that your worldview corresponds with reality, the more you will experience what? What would we say? Chaos. Chaos, yeah. Now, let me just make it, let me just give you a very simple illustration. Uh, to make that crystal clear. Imagine a guy climbs to the top of, tall, uh, of a tall skyscraper and he says, I don't believe in the reality of gravity and jumps. What happens? Literally, chaos. Because the, the, the unity of his body will splatter into a million pieces all over the ground. Why? Because he denied reality. You see, if you don't get the most basic element of life right, if you don't understand what's at the core of reality, 
everything else in your life is going to move away from reality and toward chaos. I don't know if you realize this or not. I don't know if you, I don't know if you realize this. I don't know if you've thought about it this way or not. But if you read uh, the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament, they're all based upon the idea that God is ultimate reality. Here's, here's how. Here's what I mean. They divide neatly. All of his letters divide neatly into two parts. Almost, almost all of them do. The first part of the letter starts with, the first part of the letter always starts with God, who he is, his nature. In other words, they always begin, the first part of his letters always begin with who is this person who defines who is ultimate reality. And then the second part of the book is always about how to live. And do you know what connects the first part of the book to the second part of the book? You know, you know what connects it? It's the word therefore. It's always therefore. Check it out this afternoon. You, you can see that, that's, that's the way it goes in these books. In other words, because God is ultimate reality, what he's doing in those letters is he's saying, because here's who the God is, who is ultimate reality, Here's how to live in a manner that is consistent with reality. That's what he's doing. All of the instruction in the New Testament, the instruction about family and relationships and sexual ethics and financial ethics and, and all of the rest of the things that the New Testament covers are all based upon God who is ultimate reality. In other words, they're the natural extension of the one who is at the core of reality. And to live in any other way will always lead to chaos and destruction. Your worldview dictates the way you live, and if your worldview is not consistent with ultimate reality, you will come apart like the guy who doesn't believe in the reality of gravity. And not just you, by the way. Not just you will come apart. But all the people in your relational circle, your relationships will come apart, your community will come apart, even your nation. Nations split apart at their seams, you know. And ultimately, what nations split apart with is their view of ultimate reality. Who or what is at the center of ultimate reality? That's what nations split apart about. You have to get the most basic element of reality right if you're going to correctly understand the rest of life. And so point number one is the first and the most basic element of a biblical worldview is that God is ultimate reality. That's what Paul is telling the Athenians when he says, in him we live and move and have our being. But, okay, but, I said that there's this other thing that I want you to see from this passage, and it's this inscription that Paul refers to on a religious altar there in Athens that reads, to an unknown God. Now, what is the significance of that? Because Paul says to these people, he says, he says you worship this unknown God, even though you deny him, you worship this unknown God. What's the significance? Paul is pointing out to these Athenians, and he could be speaking to people in our culture today. He's pointing out to them that there is a massive contradiction at the core of the worldview of these intellectual elites, these, these, these uh, philosophers in Athens, these supposed deep thinkers. He says there's a massive intellectual contradiction at the core of your worldview. On the one hand, he says, you are ignorant of this God that I proclaim. You don't know him. But on the other hand, you worship him, you live your lives as if you do know him. And, and here's what he means, because that sounds odd. Here's what he means. And, I, and let, in fact, let me try to explain it this way. Some of you may remember uh, the late Francis Schaeffer. He was a theologian, he was a pastor, he was a philosopher. And Schaeffer once said that our culture likes to think about life, likes to think about the world as if we live in a two-story house with stairs. 
or excuse me, with no stairs. In fact, he said, Francis Schaeffer said, that, that our culture likes to think about the fact that we live in a two-story house. I add the part about having no stairs in the house. I'll explain that in a minute. On the bottom floor, he says, is where we, our culture wants to live. And on the bottom floor, there is no God at the center of reality. That's how our culture likes to think about life. We don't want to believe that there is a God who defines reality. Okay? On the second floor, the upstairs floor, is where things like meaning and purpose and justice are located. The problem, Schaefer said, is that when we try to live on the bottom floor, when our culture tries to live on the bottom floor with no God at the center of reality, life is unbearable there. You can't live that. For instance, the, the, the 20th century philosopher Albert Camus concluded that because there's no God at the center of reality, he concluded life is absurd. It's, it's absurd. It is so unbearable to live there. Schaefer says, here's how, he, here's how he says it. He says, we make leaps of faith. Our culture makes leaps of faith into the upper floor to affirm things like meaning and value and justice. And he calls them leaps of faith because there is no logical staircase to get us there. Because there's no ultimate reality. So, we, so, so he's saying, what's ironic about that is that Christians are often accused of making leaps of faith to believe in God. But instead, it's the culture that denies God as ultimate reality that has to make leaps of faith. That's the contradiction that Paul is pointing out to the Athenians. You deny my God as ultimate reality... But you make these leaps of faith to make life bearable that can only come from him. Okay, now I, I realize that that might be a little uh, confusing and a little abstract. So let me, I'm going to give you a couple of very current examples of this to show you what I mean. Uh, since the death of George Floyd earlier this year, protesters, some peaceful, some not, have filled the streets of major cities in America with cries of racism uh, in the form of racial injustice. This is wrong they say, for one race to be singled out as less valuable than another race. The NBA, the NFL, uh, Major League Baseball, uh, uh, it just seems like all the commercials you see, they all seem to be proclaiming the same message, that racism is wrong. Racial injustice is wrong. But remember, we live as a culture on the bottom story of a house, and in that bottom floor, God is not ultimate reality. So on what basis can a culture who does not believe that God is ultimate reality make the claim that racism is wrong? How do you do that? Who says it's wrong? You might feel it's wrong. You might have friends who feel it's wrong. But you don't have any basis for saying that it is for certain wrong. There are people that don't think racism is wrong. And so as a culture, you see, we have to make this leap of faith into the second story of the house to affirm the dignity of human beings irrespective of race. That's a leap of faith to say that racism is wrong in a culture in which there is no absolute ultimate reality. Now contrast that with Christianity and a biblical worldview. When Paul speaks, for instance, Paul speaks in Galatians. He actually, he absolutely speaks about racism in, in the book of Galatians. And when he does so, 
He, he says that racism is wrong, but he does so only after affirming. Remember how I said that the books in the New Testament, the letters in the New Testament are always divided into two parts. One, the basis, what is, who is ultimate reality? What is this God like? And then how you should live. He only, affirm, he only says that racism, racism is wrong after affirming that God is at the center of reality. Because God is at the center of reality, because God created human life, Paul says, therefore... Every life has dignity, so racism is wrong. But you see, there's no leap of faith there. There's a basis in a Christian biblical worldview for decrying racial injustice and racial inequities. And you see, that's the contradiction Paul is trying to point out to these Athenians when he talks about their unknown God. He says, he's saying, you deny the God, you're ignorant of the God that I proclaim, who is at the center of reality, but you can't bear that life. So you make leaps of faith and carry out your lives as if you do believe in this God. Now here's the point. Here's the point. I'm, I'm going to give you another example of this in a moment. But let me just say, let me make the point. Here it is. If you deny that God is ultimate reality, you live with a massive intellectual contradiction at the center of your worldview that will lead to chaos. I want to say that again for those who are listening on our podcast. If you deny that God is ultimate reality, you live with a massive intellectual contradiction at the center of your worldview that will lead to chaos. You cannot bear the life that you would have to live, what life would mean if there is no God at, ultimate, at the center of reality. And so you make leaps of faith that you have no basis for. That's the intellectual contradiction. Now let me, let me give you another current example of this, this massive contradiction that Paul is pointing out. Uh, since the beginning of this uh, coronavirus pandemic, if you turn on any news broadcast, what do you always see on the screen these days? What do you always see on the screen? You, you know, any, any news, ABC, CNN, Fox, I mean, any, MSNBC, anything you watch, what do you see? What's always there? You always see a current tally of the number of people who have died from the coronavirus. Now, why do they, why do they, why do they include that? Why, why do they do that? Well, because they're marking the, the tragedy of lost lives. But that's a leap of faith. See, that's a leap of faith that is born out of an unbearable existence in which there is no God at the core of reality. If God is not ultimate reality as our culture believes, those, what, over, over 200,000 people now who have died were, according to our culture's worldview, just random cosmic accidents whose lives had no meaning or value. And so there's no point in tallying them up. Who cares? But you see, that's an unbearable way to live. So as a culture, we make a leap of faith with no basis for doing so and say that their deaths are tragic. That is a massive intellectual contradiction, Paul says. You aren't being consistent with your worldview. You deny the God that I proclaim at the center of reality, yet you live as if you believe in him. Okay? Now again, contrast that with the biblical worldview. The Bible tells us from the very first pages of Scripture that God is ultimate reality who has created human life. Therefore, 
Every human life has tremendous value because we've been made in the image of God and every death is tragic. No leaps of faith there, you see. No massive intellectual contradictions. If your worldview does not have God as ultimate reality, you cannot make sense of life and you will always have to be making intellectually inconsistent leaps of faith to make life bearable. Right? You understand that? All of these value statements that people in our culture make are intellectually inconsistent with the idea that there is no God at the center of reality. If we're all random cosmic accidents, who says life has value? Who says racism is wrong? Who says that death is tragic? Who says that any life has meaning? You can't do it. You can't do it. And so a worldview that is consistent with reality, a biblical worldview that is consistent with reality, always starts with, well, it starts with what, class? What does it always start with? That God is ultimate reality. That's what it starts with. Would you say that with me? Number one is that God is ultimate reality. Could you say it a little louder because I can't hear you through your, uh, through your uh, face masks? God is ultimate reality. That is number one. That's the very first thing that you have to understand if you're going to have a biblical worldview. Now, I need to close, and I want to close with this. Here's what's fascinating. Paul was preaching and proclaiming the gospel here in Athens over 2,000 years ago. And over 2,000 years later today, we are still, as we meet as a church, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no way that you can explain that. There is no way that a philosophy alone could account for the spread of the gospel around the world. No, you see, Christianity isn't, well, Christianity isn't less than a philosophy, but it also isn't just a philosophy. Because at the center of Christianity is a person the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his death on the cross demonstrated the heart of God who is ultimate reality. Christianity is not an impersonal philosophy or an abstract set of rules and teachings. Christianity is about a person who is ultimate reality, who died for you because he loved you so deeply and who conquered death through his resurrection. And that, that person changed the way that we view reality forever. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord, I pray that you would take these words, that you would seal them into the hearts of, uh, and, and the minds of the people here, that you define reality, that you are reality. Uh, that power, power isn't the definition of reality. Powerful people don't define reality. Uh, society doesn't define reality. Uh, I don't define reality. No individual defines reality. Governments don't define reality. Companies don't define reality. You are ultimate reality. And as such, you define reality. Pray that you would drive that into our, our hearts and our minds, Lord. But I pray also, Lord, 
that you would drive into our hearts and minds this morning that Christianity is not just a, a philosophy, but that Christianity is ultimately a person. And that person, his death on the cross, his resurrection, changed the way that we view ultimate reality forever. And we thank you for him. And it is in his name that we worship this morning and pray. Amen.